Welcome to What Your GP Doesn't Tell You, the podcast for both doctors and patients with me, Liz Tucker. This week's guest, Dr. Lisa Sanders, writes a column called Diagnosis in the New York Times magazine. It was the inspiration for the Fox medical series, House MD, in which Hugh Laurie, playing Dr. Gregory House, remarkably, every week, managed to diagnose even the most obscure of medical conditions. But today, Lisa has a rather tougher challenge than arguably Hugh Laurie ever faced. She's recently started running a clinic for long COVID. It's a condition that can affect multiple systems and organs in the body, and finding effective treatments so far has largely eluded the medical profession. However, Lisa reveals approaches that it does appear can help at least some patients and discusses the latest theories on what causes long COVID. She argues that we need to see this condition not as an entirely new phenomenon, but in the context of many other post-acute infection syndromes, which includes everything from ME to flu. Controversially, her theory is that it required enough doctors to get sick from long COVID for the profession to start taking these conditions more seriously. But before we get to Lisa's interview, a brief request from me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to leave a review on Spotify or Apple, that would be much appreciated. It really helps. You can also become a paid supporter of the podcast at patreon.com slash tell you, or via PayPal on my website, whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. A huge amount of work goes into both the research and production of this podcast. So even a small amount of money makes a huge difference. And you can find out more information about the pod on my website, where you can sign up for the podcast mailing list, follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker, and on my Substack account, liz.tucker.substack.com. Many thanks. And now back to Lisa's interview. Dr. Lisa Sanders is the medical director of Yale's Long COVID Multidisciplinary Care Centre. She had a somewhat unusual career path, working for both ABC and CBS News as a journalist before retraining as a doctor in her 30s. Lisa has published a number of books, including several about diagnosis, and is currently researching clinical decision-making and the way diagnostic decisions and errors are made. Here's her interview. So Lisa, thank you very much indeed for joining the podcast today. Thank you so much, Liz, for inviting me. Your column, Diagnosis in the New York Times, provided the inspiration for the TV series House, where Hugh Laurie was always able to diagnose a condition, however obscure, But have there ever been moments in your career where you've been absolutely at a loss and unable to come up with a diagnosis? You wouldn't really be thinking about patients if you didn't recognize that you were going to be stumped. That's why we have consultants. I mean, when I was in training, we were taught that the reason that you should always know the diagnosis before you refer somebody to a consultant, because otherwise, how will you know if they screw it up? But that's not always the case. You know, sometimes you don't know what it is. It's out of your league. You run through everything you can think of and you actually just need help. And so I I refer people to subspecialists who I think can help me make the right diagnosis. So that happens all the time. And if it never happens to you, it's because you're not thinking about the patient fully. So how much of this diagnosis process do you think is an art and how much is a science? So I I wouldn't call it an art at all. I I wouldn't call it just a science. I mean, I think it requires things that are fundamentally human, curiosity, a willingness to be 
open to uncertainty, a willingness to tolerate uncertainty until you get the right information. This is not science, it's, and it's not exactly art. It's just being a human being who's naturally curious. Once you have sufficient information, it's helpful to have knowledge. It's helpful to having seen things before. The person who's most likely to make a diagnosis is clearly the person who's seen this before. But if you're not that person, you can look it up, think about it, try to figure it out. So I think that part of it, the figuring out part of it is kind of a science. We know sort of what the steps are that you should be walking through. We know that there are things that you should know in medicine. And thank God, there's the internet. So, I mean, I think it's all of those things. I think here in the UK, and I appreciate it's different in the States, our doctors operate by NICE guidelines, which I think you can argue in some ways is quite restrictive because it's, has this, this and this been fulfilled? And that doesn't necessarily allow for individual difference in patients, should we say? Okay, I can see that. I think that algorithms are useful, but they really only take you so far. So as far as they take you, that's great. But if that doesn't take you to the answer, then you have to go to other things like the rest of your knowledge. And it also depends on how good a history that you take. We know for sure from a study done in England in 1975 that's been reproduced many times and revalidated that the most important piece of information in making a diagnosis is the patient's story. We know that for sure. It's been proved a million times. If you don't elicit the full story, the chances of you are getting it right, they're less. So once you get the full story, if you want to plug it into an algorithm, I think that makes a lot of sense because you know that will show you what most people with these problems have. If the algorithm doesn't get you there, then you're on your own. Then you have to actually think. And I think there's some evidence, particularly for family doctors, the people who see the same doctor, actually their life expectancy is longer than someone that sees different family doctors. Oh, absolutely. The person who knows you best, that's the person who should be thinking about you. Sometimes that person has to reach out to other places, to other doctors. You know, in the United States, when I was trained, most patients were seen by a general practitioner who is somebody who's done three or four years of medical school, one year of residency, and then hung up their shingle. So they have a limitation in how much they know. They know a lot about the chronic diseases, but the things that are weird, they're going to know less about. And that's what an internist's job was. Since then, we sort of moved so that internists are the primary care doctors. And that's made it, to me, more important and less interesting. The way to save the most lives is to be very competent in managing chronic diseases. But not everybody has a chronic disease. And I think it's an internist's job to be able to figure out the people who don't have the usual things. Now, you're dealing with one of the trickiest chronic diseases. You moved into an area of medicine, I think many doctors would dread long COVID. It's a condition without obvious markers, a wide variety of symptoms, and really no clear treatment. So what made you keen to do this? Oh, isn't it obvious? I mean, (laughs) if you're interested in things that are not on the beaten path, not doable by algorithm, then long COVID is totally that. So I've been a primary care doctor for the last 20 years. And I teach primary care medicine. And I think it's important because that is really what saves most lives. But I've always been interested in the odd things, 
I mean, I've spent my life writing a column about the odd things. And so when I heard that they were thinking about starting a clinic to look at the patients who had long COVID, I was like, oh, I'm the person for that job. I'm interested. I can get a good history. I I have all the skills. I should be in that job. And I think the reason that most primary care doctors dread the idea of long COVID, because it's often, almost always, a multi-system disease. Our systems here in the United States, and I don't know what it's like in the UK, but I suspect it's the same. It's not set up to have a complicated patient. Our visits are 15 minutes. You know, the average visit in the United States is like 16 minutes, and that's an improvement. You can't take on a multi-system problem. And I think that many doctors would welcome a chance to think about complicated medical problems if they had the structure to support them. When I came to this position, it was already set up so that I had an hour with each patient, and they need it, and some need more. That's a system that is set up to help somebody with a complicated medical problem. If you don't have the system to support you, of course, you're going to dread seeing these complex patients. I think what a lot of doctors in the UK will call heart sink patients. Heart sink patients. Yes, those are the patients that make your heart sink when you see them on your schedule. But again, that's a systems problem. The reason their hearts sink is because they can't help the patient. That's why they feel that way. It's not because the patients are so awful. You know, I don't know what the patient's like at all, but I think that the reason doctors feel so bad is because they know they don't have the support to actually do anything for that patient. That's why they're heart sink patients. It's a systems flaw. I did a TED Med talk about how there should be a structural place for people who have an undiagnosed disease, that there should be specialists like House who have a system set up so that they can see medically complex patients who need a diagnosis. And that requires access to subspecialists, that requires time, that requires a lot of things. And we don't have that. So I think that's what we need. I mean, people see an internist or a general practitioner, although that's a a fading art here, mostly those people have been replaced by APRNs, you know, specially trained nurses and physicians assistants. But getting into a doctor as a new patient takes months. Getting into a subspecialist as a new patient takes many months. It's terrible the way our system is set up. I don't know what it's like in the UK, but here it's just awful. Particularly with the consequences of lockdown, we've got big backlogs for lots of people with very serious medical illnesses. Now, one of the issues that people with long COVID have complained about is the difficulty in being taken seriously sometimes. Yes, I cannot tell you how many men and women have sat in my exam room and they don't just see me. So before they see me, they see this respiratory therapist, they see the social worker, they see the physical therapist. And At one or all of those meetings, the patient will break down in tears and say, oh, thank God, this is the first time anybody's listened to me or believed me or thought I wasn't crazy or depressed or upset. Men and women both just weep because they feel unheard. Now, there's various different definitions of long COVID. What's the version that you use? I use a version of the WHO's definition, which is you had COVID and three months later, you either still have symptoms or have developed new symptoms that you think are linked to COVID. And, and this is important, that can't be accounted for in any other way. 
the first thing I have to think of when I see a patient is, is this anything other than long COVID? Because anything other than long COVID probably has a useful treatment. If you treat somebody for the wrong disease, the chances of their getting better are very small. So Lisa, in the clinic that you run, because there are so many different symptoms of long COVID, that involves working with specialists from a wide range of different medical areas. Absolutely. I mean, I see patients and once I decide that they do have long COVID, we take care of the low-hanging fruit, the things that we can take care of. And if they need subspecialty care, then we refer them on for subspecialty care. For example, many people who come have maybe had asthma when they were a child, but have not given it a thought in 20, 30 years. And suddenly, you know, they see our respiratory therapist and decides whether they look like they have asthma or not. And then we, we treat them from there. If they have asthma, then we treat them for asthma. If they don't have asthma, probably we'll get a CT scan and then send them to the pulmonologist. And what's the range of symptoms that you're seeing? Well, everybody, almost everybody has terrible fatigue, part of a long tail of a, of a viral infection that's not limited to COVID for sure. We see a lot of patients who have what they call brain fog, some cognitive changes, you know, a, a reduction in their ability to concentrate, short-term memory problems like word-finding difficulties. Many of them, maybe up to 80%, have something called postural orthostatic tachycardia, which is a form of dysautonomia where their autonomic nervous system has gone a little wacky. And those people we can help. There are medicines for it, but actually we treat them with something that is more, I think, what most people would think of as lifestyle treatment. Those are the top three, but people with respiratory symptoms are very common, often asthma, sometimes not. Sometimes people have been injured by the COVID virus. Their lungs have been injured. So that's why after we get a respiratory test on them, if they don't have asthma or if they have certain signs of a restriction in their barometry, we get a CT scan to make sure that they don't have scarring or something worse. Just because you've had COVID doesn't mean that you don't have anything else going on. So we see a lot of things. And I would say that a quarter, maybe, of the people that I see, their fundamental issue is not COVID. It's not long COVID. It's something else. And what would be the other tests that you would do aside from those that you've mentioned? Well, usually by the time people get to me, they've had a lot of blood tests. But I make sure that all of the sort of questions that blood tests can answer have been sort of checked off. We often use a D-dimer since COVID can often cause clots. A D-dimer gives us an awareness of a clot that's breaking down. It suggests maybe some sort of clotting disorder. Or we check them to see if they have any rheumatologic problems. We check them to see if they have inflammation. We check them to make sure that their kidneys are working okay and their liver is working okay and they have enough red blood cells. I mean, so we do the usual tests plus a few specialized tests. Now, another thing that's been reported quite frequently, people who have long COVID, is depression. And I wondered how much that is someone feeling depressed because anyone's likely to not feel great if they've had a horrible disease for a long time or whether that's actually the disease itself. It's a good question. And I am very careful about that because so many of the patients I see have been sort of blown off by doctors saying that they're just depressed, as if depression wasn't the cause of a lot of death and a lot of serious morbidity. 
I'm very careful about asking that question because we know that COVID goes into the brain and can cause acute psychiatric illnesses. So I ask them, are you depressed because you're sick or are you depressed for reasons that don't make any sense to you? I have to take their word for it. But in some ways, it doesn't matter. Just like it doesn't matter whether you had childhood asthma. If you have asthma now, you just need to be treated. Doesn't matter that you had a history of headaches. If you have headaches now, they just need to be treated. So it's the same with depression. We know for sure that COVID can cause anxiety, can cause depression, can cause a lot of things, can cause acute psychosis in a few case reports. It can go into your brain and mess with things and move the furniture around in there. So what would be the mechanism for COVID causing acute psychosis? I have no idea. I don't even know how it causes depression or anxiety. I mean, there was a recent study that showed that people who have long COVID tend to have lower levels of serotonin in their bloodstream. Is that important? Is that the cause of the depression in people with long COVID or is that the result of the depression? We don't, we don't know any of those things. And of course, recent research suggested the idea that depression is caused by serotonin abnormalities is actually not the case. Yes. The way we look at the brain is kind of crazy, but it's all we have. There aren't blood tests that tell us about how the brain is working. They're not, you know, there's not MRIs that we can do to tell if you're depressed or not. I mean, it's all based on history. So in terms of the patients that you're seeing, Lisa, what sort of demographic breakdown is there in terms of sex, age, ethnicity? Mostly I've seen women, but it's very close. In my primary care practice, most of my patients were women because mostly it's women who go to the doctor. Here, I see a lot more men than I expected. So I would say it's maybe 60, 40 women to men. Most of my patient population is middle class and better. And that's, I think, a lack of outreach on our part. We're trying to address that by spreading the word because we know that COVID affected those people who didn't have jobs that allowed them to sit at home and think or do their job. They had jobs that required them to be there. I mean, doctors are one of those classes, but there were other people too. And many of those people are working class, you know, at the hard end of the socioeconomic spectrum. And those patients have been underrepresented, not just in my clinic, but in many long COVID clinics. So we're trying to address that in New Haven, which is an extremely diverse economically, racially, politically, very diverse, small city. This is in Connecticut? In Connecticut. There seems to be largely reported more women who have long COVID than men. And we know that women tend to have more autoimmune disease. Do you think there might be a connection there? Do I think there's a connection between being a woman and having an autoimmune disease? Absolutely. I think we have much more complicated, we need to have much more complicated immune system. And our immune systems are exposed to a lot more than a man's system. I don't know that it's an important component in long COVID because I really haven't seen that many autoimmune diseases. I guess it depends on what we finally decide autoimmune is. But if you look at the classic autoimmune diseases that you can mostly diagnose with blood tests, I haven't seen a lot of that. We look for it a lot but we don't necessarily find it. So I'm not sure that that's a huge driver of why women are more affected by long COVID. And we only know that they're the ones that report being affected by long COVID. We don't know, because there aren't any tests, 
whether there is this male female difference because I think at least in the United States there were more men who got COVID than women. So you would think that long COVID would be at least equally represented among men as it is among women. We only know the people who talk about it. One of the interesting studies, and this of course isn't very helpful if you've already got long COVID, but basically the use of metformin, which is a diabetes drug, given to people in the acute stage of COVID, which seemed to produce a large reduction of around 40% in the number of cases that went on to develop long COVID. Yeah, very exciting. You know, I mean, it would be great if that was more widely used. Again, at least in the United States, the politics of long COVID and and COVID have made that difficult. I just had a call from a patient who has long COVID, caught COVID again, which happens a lot, and her doctor wouldn't prescribe her metformin. It's probably too late for her now. She's seven to 10 days out. I'm going to send her doctor a copy of the study. Yeah. You know, I don't know what else to do. I mean, we, in general, tell people who have acute COVID, even if there are patients for their long COVID, to contact the primary care doctor because that's who should be managing that. But it's interesting, isn't it, Lisa? Because metformin is an old drug. It's been around for ages. And I would have thought relatively low risk. Well, I'm not sure the risk of it is what they're concerned about. Now, I think a colleague of yours is looking at using the drug Paxlovid in the treatment of long COVID. Yes. One of my colleagues, Harlan Crumholt, is doing a randomized double-blind controlled study looking at whether 15 days of Paxlovid compared to placebo changes the course of long COVID. The issue with Paxlovid is for people who have acute COVID, you do have a group of people who seem to get this rebound syndrome. Yeah, so people think that the five days that they're taking it is not enough. And that's why they get rebound. I think the statistic is about 20% of people get rebound after taking Paxlovid, which is a lot. So what are the therapies that you are experimenting with or looking to use in your patients? I did read about you using hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I have patients who have tried to use that for brain fog and fatigue. And there are some studies that show that it's effective. There was one really beautifully designed study of, I think, 100 patients, 50 of whom laid in a hyperbaric chamber and didn't get hyperbaric oxygen. And the other 50 got hyperbaric oxygen, but they didn't know who was who, theoretically. And the people who got hyperbaric oxygen, more of them got better than in the other group. So I think that that's useful. In the United States, it's super expensive. And insurance companies are loath to fork out that kind of money, but have for some people. So I think that if you can get your insurance company to pay for it, that's great. But if you can't, it's $60,000, more or less. That's a lot of money. Wow, that is. And are there any risks to someone trying that? Um, Of course, there are. And I'm not an expert on this, so I send them to my colleague, Sandra Wainwright, who does the hyperbaric oxygen closest to me. So I let her talk about the risks and the benefits. So what are some of the other approaches you've looked at? The hot medicine that was identified very early on as being sort of a panacea was low-dose naltrexone. My job is to make people's lives better. So the risk-benefit 
has to be very weighted towards the benefit with very little risk. So with low-dose naltrexone, it's been used for many years. So naltrexone is uh, a medicine that binds to the opiate receptors in your brain and is used for people who take opiates. So that's at a high level. At a very low dose, it has a different set of effects and has been used for many years to treat people who have chronic pain and other chronic issues. And so I've used that and some people get benefit from it, some don't. When you say some people get benefit, some people don't, can you put a figure in terms of- I cannot. Okay. And those studies have never been done. Actually, low-dose naltrexone was one of the first medicines looked at. And if you actually read the study that came out, it's a little bit laughable. I mean, I'm glad somebody was trying to think about something, but basically they took 75 people with long COVID, gave them a survey about how they felt, gave them low-dose naltrexone, and a month or two or three later, gave them the same survey to see if they got better and more people got better than did. Not super rigorous. No, that's a terrible study. But it's all we had. And, you know, turning something around in the three and a half years since, or almost four years since long COVID hit the scene, it's not easy to come up with an idea, a mechanism, get the funding. It's complicated. So I was grateful that there was any study whatsoever. There was a study published in July out of, as far as I can tell, the NIH of Ireland that was a meta-analysis of a lot of different treatments for long COVID. They published a report. Yes. It's a huge, long report, and I made my way through it. Most things, they were like, nah, doesn't help, no, doesn't work. But there were a few things that they thought worked and had some pretty good studies to support them, and they were supplements. Now, let me just say, I have a very traditional background and training, and while I was a primary care doctor, which was up until a year ago, I never used supplements in anything I did because the evidence just wasn't that great. Not even vitamin D. You know, now you're, you're getting past supplements. I mean, yes, it's a supplement, but really, it's an essential, but you're right, busted. So, I mean, I used the things that were part of traditional medicine, but I never sort of went outside of that until I read this Irish study, which identified two combinations of supplements that have been shown to be effective in treating some of the hardest symptom to treat, which is fatigue. So I have prescribed those and I've had sort of some people respond to it. Some people don't. So I try. What were those things, Lisa? One is a combination of L-arginine and vitamin C. And the other is coenzyme Q10 plus alpha-lipoic acid. Those are supplements. I use those because I feel like there's a pretty low downside. And if it helps this terrible symptom of fatigue, it's a plus. There was a study, again, not a great study, It was really a case series looking at one treatment for brain fog that came out of Yale. Two of my colleagues published this looking at the combination of a supplement called N-acetylcysteine or NAC, a prescribed medicine that's used to treat ADHD called guanfacine. In this case series, people with brain fog did better by report. There haven't been a lot of other studies since then. There've been some, but they found what I have found, which is maybe some people get better and maybe not. 
and people stop it. Other centers that I've looked at use other ADHD medicines. The nice thing about guanfacine is that it's not a stimulant. So you don't have all of the high blood pressure, tachycardia. Tachycardia is already a problem for so many of these patients. But it's nice to have a non-stimulant to try. So things like that. I send so many people for sleep studies. In the United States, we have a lot of obese people. But it turns out that despite what my training told me, Sleep apnea is not only seen among the obese, and so I see it diagnosed a lot. In many ways, long COVID sounds as if it's got similarities to ME or chronic fatigue syndrome. Do you think there's a possibility that there's some sort of link between the conditions? Well, I think that some people who have long COVID fit the criteria for ME-CFS. We know that ME-CFS is triggered by infections. I mean, I think most people who have ME-CFS, it was triggered by some sort of abnormal immune reaction to an infection. And I think the same is true in long COVID. Many people have ME-CFS. And the traditional teaching is that nothing helps. And yet, we're not supposed to use this kind of evidence. But my best friend, when I was in television, got ME-CFS and got better. So I'm sure that there are ways to get better. So I'm in that cohort of doctors who use very slow graded activity levels to increase people's ability. The problem with MECFS, if you follow the recommendations, which is stay on the couch for the rest of your life, that's going to cause the rest of your body to degrade. And that's going to add to your fatigue because your cardiopulmonary fitness is just going to go into the toilet. So at the very least, I think that people have to be active enough so that they don't make their condition worse by becoming couch potatoes. On the other hand, avoiding crashes, there's no evidence that these crashes that people who have MECFS does physiologic harm other than adding to the deconditioning, but it certainly does a lot of psychic harm and it's a waste of time. So my goal is to get people to slowly gently, gradually increase their activity level without causing a crash. And then it also sounds a bit similar to chronic Lyme's disease as well. Yes. I think that this is my plan. Don't tell Yale. I'll make sure no one hears the podcast, Lisa. Don't worry. It'll be our secret. (laughs) There's been a long history of post-infectious syndromes. And COVID is the one that got everybody thinking about it. These syndromes have been around for a long time. Just a simple literature search. I found it going back to studies looking at this or noting it, you know, as far back as 1860s. So this has been known for a long time. My theory, it took COVID to get enough doctors sick so that some of them thought, oh, maybe there's something to this. So I think that my goal is to expand our clinic. It's a very new clinic. So not yet, but soon to expand it to invite people with all kinds of post-infectious syndromes to see us. Because actually there was a review in Nature Medicine that put long COVID within a group of post-acute infection syndromes, everything from Ebola to flu. Absolutely. There's that long list. I use that in a talk I give about long COVID. 
Of course, if you survive Ebola, you probably don't care about the long Ebola syndrome because you're just glad to be here. The flu is on there. And we've known after the 1918 flu, there was this huge cohort of people who had symptoms afterward that were written up. They were a little bit different, but viruses are going to do different things at different times, or the same symptoms might be interpreted differently at different times. And how much do we know about what happened to that group in the early 20th century with long-term post-viral symptoms? As far as I know, we don't know very much. They were counted. You know, somebody wrote a study about it. I've not seen anything that did follow up because I'd love to tell my patients, this is what's been seen in the past. This is what's most likely to happen. Because of course, they feel like, does anybody know what's going to happen to me next? And the answer is no. And I think it is important, isn't it? Because there's nothing worse going into your doctor and the doctor saying, well, I'm not sure there's anything we could do. You sort of instantly feel worse. You know, if I go in and I feel a bit grotty and she says, oh, well, don't worry, in a few weeks, you'll feel better. I almost feel better as I walk out. (laughs) Exactly. It's a tough job to say, I don't know. But I think that people can feel better. I don't know that I can tell people, you will be back to normal in a few weeks, a few months or a few years. I don't know how long it's going to take them to get to normal, to their old normal. A few months back, I interviewed a consultant in chronic pain. And again, people's lives can be devastated. He's not able to give people, you'll be fine in a few months. But in terms of managing the condition and giving them some hope so that long term, they can return to a semblance of normal life. Well, a normal life, sure. Their normal life, it's not so clear, right? I mean, there's a difference. You can, I think that you can help people with symptoms and they can develop strategies. Like for brain fog, one of the first things I do for patients who come in with brain fog is refer them for cognitive rehabilitation, which sort of looks at thinking and intellectual work. But the other thing that they do is they give patients some tutoring, some coaching on how to manage when your your six-cylinder brain is only hitting on four or five cylinders. And I think that's helpful too. That helps them get back to a normal that they can manage. It may not be their old normal. And I don't know that their old normal will never be there. I can't believe that most of these people will not get back to their old normal, but we don't know. So of the patients you see, what numbers are you able to make a meaningful difference to, would you say? Well, I think that we make a meaningful difference to all of them because we actually listen to them. I've only been in business for nine months. So that's pretty fast. For some things, I mean, some people we've already discharged, they say, I feel great. And the natural history of long COVID is that most people will feel better after a year. Of course, the people who are unlikely to feel better after a year are overrepresented in my patients because most people actually feel better after three months. That's why I put a three month time limit. You can't come to see me until it's been three months since you had COVID because we know that most of those symptoms will go away within three months. So I don't know. I'll know better when you ask me in a year. We saw our first patient on March the 20th. So I'll be able to do a year's worth of data after that date. And we didn't actually get fully staffed and up and running until July 1st. So we're really very new at this, but we've already had some success with some patients. We're taking credit for that, but 
a lot of it is the natural history of some of these symptoms that we don't understand well. There does seem to be growing evidence that fragments of the virus may hang about in the organ tissue and that that may cause symptoms that may trigger inflammation or indeed an autoimmune response. Does that match with what you're seeing? I know that there are studies that show that there are fragments in the body, especially in the gut. That's been shown many times. It makes sense to me, maybe, or it triggered your immune system to do something strange, maybe. I'm not sure. And I don't think anybody really knows yet. There were several different theories, low-level ongoing infection, the way we've seen with other kinds of viruses or viral fragments, or the virus is there and went and triggered an autoimmune process, or the virus was there, did some injury and is gone, and you're just left dealing with the injury. So I think all of those things happen because the variety of symptoms that people have cover the spectrum. You know, there are people who come in and say, it's the weirdest thing, but I don't have any sensation in my left leg, just the lateral part of my left leg. So, I mean, I think that probably that's something that the virus actually did to that part of their body. It's weird. I think there are a lot of different ways that COVID has affected our bodies and other viruses have done similar things. We just haven't been paying attention. Unless, of course, there are other viruses latent in the body and having acute COVID causes that to then sort of rear its head. Right. And we've seen that, especially with the herpes viruses, Epstein-Barr can reemerge since it never really goes away once you've had it. And let's face it, everybody's had it. Although, to be honest, it's interesting when it reemerges, I'm not sure what the immune response would look like. We look at IgM which is the front line, the infantry. And we look at IgG, which are the backup, the reserve, that stay around all the time. And so if you had a re-emergence of Epstein-Barr, would that trigger IgM, which is what we look for to say whether people are having an acute illness, or would it just be many more IgG, which is what we often see? So if you ask infectious disease doctors, they'll say, oh, it can't be an active infection if there's no IgM. But I'm not sure that's right. And there's nothing we can do about Epstein-Barr anyway. There's not any drug therapy for it anyway, but it might explain some of their fatigue and it might give them some hope that they're going to get better the way people with mononucleosis, which is what Epstein-Barr causes, get better. If somebody is iller when they have acute COVID, are they more likely, do you think, to develop long COVID? Absolutely. I mean, that's been shown in a lot of the studies that have looked at that. And I still have patients who were whacked with the very first wave of COVID, which was, of course, the most deadly version, who are symptomatic. But just because you've had a super mild case doesn't mean that it won't do something to you that lasts. So, as the strains of COVID have, generally speaking, got milder, are we seeing less cases, you think, of long-term disease? Well, we're seeing a lower percentage, but Omicron and all the B variations that have followed that, they're a lot more contagious. You know, it's very hard to find people who have never had COVID. So even if it's happening at a lower level, it's still happening to a lot of people. I think the last CDC estimate was that about in current infections, 6 to 8% of people who had COVID will get long COVID. 
I think that's the most recent number. So, and that's way down from 15, 20, sort of been moving down. And that's great, except that if a lot of people get COVID, even a small percentage, a lot of people will get long COVID. I think there's certainly a suggestion in the UK, and I don't think this has gone away entirely, that because there's been a lot of coverage about long COVID, that encouraged more people to think they had the condition than probably have, which obviously, if you have long COVID, is an extremely irritating thing to read. Yes. Whenever you publicize an illness, you get a lot more people who have that illness. I mean, I remember when I was a journalist, so this was a long time ago, 30 or so years ago, news organizations were reluctant to do anything about prostate cancer because there wasn't anything that could be done about it. Just like, sorry to hear that. Once they developed a surgery that was nerve sparing, theoretically, then we were free to tell the story of prostate cancer. After that, lots of people who had prostate cancer were diagnosed because their doctors were talking to them, because news media was talking about it, and because people recognized that it was an issue for them. So increase in frequency coincided with an increase in publicity or public consciousness does not mean that they made it up. That's a canard that's been leveled against all sorts of diseases before we found tests. And there are lots of diseases that people kind of don't believe in because we don't have a test. You find the test and voila, it's believed in. So if I put you in charge of funding long COVID in the US, what is going to be your strategy? What do you need money for that you don't have money for? Well, we need money to subsidize doctors who have to set aside time to see these complicated patients. Their system of seeing patients, they'd have to change all of that. And then you'd have to spend time convincing insurance companies to pay that. So, you know, I think I would use that to support doctors who want to take on these complicated medical cases. At least give them a structure to work in that allows it to happen, if not to subsidize their salary. Just give them a place where they can do it. Because if you look at most jobs for doctors with these 10 minute appointments, You can't do that. It's not possible. These people need time. Lots of people need time, but certainly these people need time. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for talking today and look forward to seeing how your work progresses. Thank you so much. Thank you, Liz. It was great talking to you. Great talking to you too. Bye. Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of the podcast. And if you've enjoyed the show, if you could leave a review, that would be much appreciated. It really helps. Many thanks for listening. Bye for now.